Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Ready for some more Bible geekery? I know I am. Hope you are, too. My name is, of course, uh, Robert M. Price, and uh, my alias is the Bible Geek. So, uh, let's say we get right to some of those questions. Uh, they're always loads of fun. I think you'll agree. Uh, here is sort of a long one from uh, Chris Cheshire. Uh, who uh, we haven't heard from for a while, though she's uh, probably been too busy with her self-imposed course of study. She's a voracious reader and thinker, as you know. Uh, so here goes. My understanding of the development and rise of Christianity has not only grown exponentially, but has also really begun to crystallize into a more coherent whole within the last a few years, thanks in part to the works of yourself and Dr. Bart Ehrman. However, a large nagging gap in my knowledge about these subjects continues to per persist. My current position on the origin of Christianity is that it grew from its roots in Jewish and other myths, most likely combined with elements of multiple rabbis, messianic figures, uh, itinerant preachers, apocalyptic prophets, and self-proclaimed healers. I understand uh, how... Uh, let's see, I'm having trouble with this uh, scrolling here. Uh, I understand how some Jews, especially after Jesus became historicized and crystallized from multiple sources into one figure... Uh, would accept the idea that their Messiah had come and fulfilled prophecy uh, and therefore alter their doctrine and religious practices to accommodate that change. I also understand how many other Jews would understand uh, this new development to be heresy in regards to Jewish teaching. I realize that there were many different sects within Christianity from its inception and within Judaism at that time. I do not in any way intend my my incredibly brief summarizing of these phenomena to sound simplistic or facile. I think I have a good working knowledge of how Christianity would become popular among both the Jews living in Israel and within the broader uh, within the broader diaspora at the time, especially following the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple in 70 CE. Uh, the, uh, uh, the broad gap in my knowledge here relates to the spread of Christianity among the Greco-Roman world. I know that within the next few centuries, uh, 
groups, uh, Christianity became uh, the, became very popular among Greco-Roman peoples to the point of Emperor Constantine converting to Christianity and Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. However, I do not understand exactly how this developed or even why Christianity would appeal so much to non-Jewish people. Uh, according to the Acts of the Apostles and several of Paul's epistles, it is clear that there was disagreement and conflict among Jewish Christians as to whether the gospel was only for the Jews or also for the rest of the world. It also appears that the writers of the gospels, or at least the final editors, had decided that the gospel was to be spread to the Gentiles in addition to the Jews, as they often have Jesus preaching very strongly that the gospel is to be spread to the Gentiles uh, during his earthly ministry and within the text of the Great Commission. However, while it's safe to say, historically speaking, that many Jewish Christians decided that they must share their religious doctrines regarding Jesus with Gentiles seeking to make converts within their communities as well as via long missionary journeys across and allegedly beyond the Roman Empire, I fail to see the connecting threads between their efforts to make converts and the viral growth that Christianity experienced among non-Jewish peoples across the next few centuries. While my understanding of broader Roman history at that time is scant and generic, I've learned that the Roman world was largely a metropolitan culture at that time, containing various, uh, or perhaps you mean cosmopolitan, uh, um, uh, at that time, containing various religions and people devoted to various gods, people who did not take the gods or religion seriously, as well as people who were not very religious or perhaps not religious at all, and that within this context of religious tolerance, the Jewish religion was accepted as another religion, and the Jewish people were free to practice as they pleased, and that this same attitude was held in regards to Christianity when it first began. However, once Christians began to believe that their God was the only God, that Jesus was the only pathway to that God, that their message needed to be believed by everyone, they started proselytizing aggressively. Um, my knowledge on the development of Christianity among the Roman Empire is very lacking. Many Christians today, and for the last several centuries, have claimed that Christians were persecuted nonstop during those early centuries, whereas, as far as I've learned, there was a persecution under Nero and perhaps one other emperor, uh, Decius or Diocletian, maybe, uh, for uh, reasons on which I'm not clear, but nowhere near as much as Christians today claim, like Candida Moss's The Myth of Persecution. Um, uh, also, I would think that in a metropolitan society, a religion that claimed to have the only God and to be the only pathway to God and sought to proselytize would not catch on so broadly, and yet it did. Of course, I realize I'm viewing this through the lens of my experience in America, now in which it appears that Christian fundamentalism is not just progressively losing more and more of its power, but is on the decline in general, especially as our country is becoming more religiously inclusive, both within our borders and beyond. So after my ramblings and working out my thoughts and understandings in here, 
uh, can you shed some light on my darkness here? Uh, do we have any good historical data and theoretical conceptions for why and how Christianity appealed so much to uh, and spread so vastly within the Greco-Roman world in the first few centuries? Or is it mostly speculation at this point? In addition, if any of what I have described in this email concerning the history of the rise of Christianity and the situation in the Roman world contains inaccuracies, misunderstandings of facts, or any any knowledge I think I have that is just plain wrong, please correct me. My theories on these matters is a work in progress, and I desire to expand my knowledge as much as I can. I don't know if you got uh, room for much more, Chris. Uh, you're doing pretty good there. I hope you're not reaching the maximum uh, before overload. Uh, but, um, okay, one thing you got to read, if you haven't already, is Rodney Stark's The Rise of Christianity, uh, in which, and the guy is a sociologist, as I'm sure you know, uh, not uh, just a historian, though he, I mean, he's the perfect example of a social historian, because the facts and the data this guy uh, comes up with, uh, from, of course, named and known sources, uh, is just astonishing, and the use he puts it to uh, is astonishing. And he, he shows, actually, that Given the time involved between, uh, the, the, as far as we know, the start of Christianity and, on the other hand, the, the uh, legitimation of Christianity under Constantine, that the, uh, the growth rate is not that odd. And he compares it with uh, the Unification Church, uh, the Mormons and others, and says that uh, there's a kind of an exponential growth rate whenever one of these new religions gets off the ground. And uh, so it isn't like some would say, oh, it's a miracle, that, that must mean the Holy Ghost is in charge. No, you don't need that hypothesis. Uh, that's just a kind of way of saying, gee, I don't understand it. It must be God, hallelujah, uh, just a cheat. Uh, it's like saying, uh, you know, uh, can't quite figure out how they built Stonehenge, so it must have been uh, UFOs, or uh, as in that uh, Monty Python thing, did dinosaurs build Stonehenge, or was it God? Well, it's just uh, giving up too quickly uh, when when there uh, probably are resources to discover uh, the, the the solution you're looking for, and I think Stark has done that. It is very very interesting what he does, uh, and and he's also kind of. Uh, reiterating what uh, E.R. Dodds says in his book, uh, Pagan and Christian in an Age of Anxiety, where he deals, and, and from here on in, I'm just talking about what the two of them say between them. I don't exactly remember without checking um, who said what, but uh, there were things that made Christianity attractive to the general population, uh, and otherwise promoted its growth. For instance, there were all kinds of plagues and earthquakes and disasters uh, in that period. And uh, Christians, from my, what our ancient sources tell us, uh, were not slow to help out people, to uh, minister to disaster victims and, and so forth, and not only of their own faith. In fact, uh, one reason we can be pretty sure this is true is that uh, Julian 
the apostate, the, the Roman emperor who was brought up as a Christian but decided to chuck it and try to uh, get paganism going again uh, in its former glory. Uh, he, he actually laments, you know, whenever there's a uh, plague or whatever, uh, the Christians are on the scene fast. I only wish our stinking priesthood would be the same way. But when plague or whatever breaks out, disasters, uh, earthquakes and all that, uh, our guys are, are running for the hills and saying, uh, good luck, everybody. And uh, naturally, that uh, that's uh, not exactly conducive to your, your religion's uh, uh, reputation. Uh, similarly, we, we know there was some persecution, and I think uh, Kendi DeMoss appears to be correct that a lot of it was just PR, oh, look at us, like the victim mentality we have universally today in, in a way that would make Nietzsche cringe. But um, there, there certainly were some persecutions, and Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is seed. Like, okay, it looks bad, but it's like in the Gospel of John. Uh, the seed has to be buried in the ground before it can sprout up, and that's kind of what happens. People uh, looked at uh, the Christians willing to be persecuted, martyred, etc., and said, these people uh, mean business. There must be something to this. If it's worth dying for, maybe it's worth living for. So uh, this was at least Tertullian's observation, and he could just be a propagandist, right? But uh, but he he says he is uh, he is reporting what non Christians are saying. Uh, and uh, that, geez, the more they cut them down, the more uh, the ground is fertilized for more. Uh, other uh, matters had to do with, uh, like, uh, the manumission of slaves. Apparently, it was not uncommon that churches would raise money to free members who were slaves. Uh, you bought them and then said, okay, you're free. Uh, well, that, of course, sounded pretty good to people. It still does to us. Uh, um their their view on uh, uh, abortion and infanticide uh, that uh, was important. Not that the um, that if you weren't a Christian you admired that opinion necessarily. I mean I I don't know whether it's true or not. But but the thing is that uh, what um, Stark says that uh, this since. Um, since Christians were against abortion and infanticide, that meant they and and who were the ones that were usually uh, thrown out with a garbage? Forgive me for saying so. Uh, and uh, and the ones who were just killed in the womb, well, mainly, well, they they wouldn't have known the latter, I guess, but mainly like infanticide in a way they would expose baby girls. What the heck? Why? Well, they figured, uh, geez, you know, I'm not sure I'll be able to marry this girl off once she comes of age, and I don't want to be stuck with her forever, yet another mouth to feed, and another, and another. Uh, so let's just get rid of them. And uh, it's pretty much the same thing as uh, abortion based on sex preference today, it seems to me. Well, they were against that, and that meant they did have more girls grow, growing up, and they, but they were no less concerned to marry them off. And uh, this m led to what you might call uh, 
uh, marrying evangelism uh, or evangelistic dating, as some used to call it, uh, that uh, if there were Christian men uh, available uh, to marry, fine, but uh, 1 Corinthians 7 makes clear that it was quite common for Christian women to be married to non-Christian men. Uh, And uh, it says that uh, you needn't worry uh, if your spouse is not a Christian, your your children are legitimate in the eyes of God, uh, which means they're they're not bastards. It was an issue that came up with mixed uh, Jewish and pagan marriages too. And uh, so, um, if the woman married a pagan man, it's not too unlikely that she would eventually get him to convert. Uh, and so you had conversion and evangelism through marriage. First Peter talks about that. Uh, it offers a kind of wisdom that is ignored often today in Christian circles. It says, uh, wives, you who are Christian, because nobody else is going to be reading it, right? Uh, uh, bear witness to your faith by your actions, uh, don't badger the poor guy, right? And uh, when he sees the uh, excellence of your life, that's the best evangelism you could do. Well, that tells us, you know, that and in 1 Corinthians 7, it's very obvious it was an issue for Christians in mixed marriages and via mixed marriages, you no doubt had a bunch of conversions. And uh, yet another thing that was very important, you mentioned the uh, the idea that Christians were saying, uh, hey, uh, it, the God of, of the Bible is the only God. You can forget your Apollo and your Zeus. You can stuff your Dionysus up your behind. Uh, the only God is the Father of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the only way to that God. Uh, so uh, forget these other religions, because as I'm sure you know from your study, um, there were uh, the, the various mystery religions overlapped a good bit, and uh, this was easy to, to explain because the other ones, the, these religions were not exclusive. You could, uh, you had to pay to join them, uh, and uh, but you, if you could afford it, you could uh, hedge your bets and be initiated into as, as many as you could afford, and uh, so. Uh, uh, you like uh, Lucy's Apuleius in the Golden Ass um, talks about uh, his hero. It's like fictively autobiographical, but it implies that he uh, and others would be initiated into the Isis religion and the Mithras religion and so on. Because, uh, you know, why take chances? Suppose there is only one true one and you're not in it. Well, don't you, you know, cover the waterfront there. Well, when Christianity said, no, uh-uh, uh, the, you must not have uh, much confidence in any one of them if you're uh, trying to play it safe. No, uh, and, and the more you do that, uh, as Stark calls it, you have a diversified portfolio of salvation, the less devotion you're going to have to any one of them. Uh, and I mean, it's just psychologically impossible. How can you be a true believer in any of them if you're, you know, if you feel you need all of them? Uh, so um, that meant that um, when people joined the Christian church, they, um, they, like any new sect, they had to be um, 
very dedicated to it. You couldn't take it for granted, especially since it was a new religion. New sects are more tenuous, right, as in the parable of the sower in Mark 4. A lot of things can distract you unless you're really riveted to it and active in it, and these Christians were. Um, and, uh, uh, let's see, yeah, and, and simple numbers. If you converted to Christianity knowing this, that it was this and nothing else, that meant not only that Christians were gaining one, but all these other religions the Christian convert had belonged to lost a member. And so uh, eventually it would pile up. Now, why would Jews be um, uh, especially attracted to Christianity? Well, you mentioned the diaspora. Well, there were. You're talking about the danger of assimilation. Jews who were living among Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, whatever, and had friends, had spouses, had bosses and fellow workers. They they lived generally in the the dominant. Um, pagan Gentile culture, uh, they, th- there were roadblocks, or should I say barrier walls, er- erected by uh, the Jewish Torah, Levitical dietary laws and uh, the Sabbath observance and the things that were not uh, shared by pagan neighbors and friends. Now, originally, those uh, those uh, Levitical laws were probably created precisely to isolate Jews from pagans so that they didn't assimilate. Because Jews being a minority, the more of them that feel at home and start uh, acting like the pagans, no matter what they believed, eh, really, you know, just uh, not eating a ham sandwich matter all that much. Uh, uh, and you, you keep making compromises like that. Any one or two may seem like you could get away with it. I got a great uh, student back at uh, Bergen Community College, uh, Elliot, I forget his last name offhand. He was an involved, faithful Jew, uh, worked in a synagogue and all that. Well, we had our Heretics Anonymous meetings on Friday evenings. Well, you know, he shouldn't have been going to them, uh, but because uh, it's the Sabbath after the sundown. And I got up the guts to ask him about that once. And he said, well, yeah, I know it's an infraction, but it's too good to miss. Uh, and uh, a lot of people thought that. And this guy was not some sort of bad slider. He was a faithful Jew, but he kind of made an exception for this. And uh, so the more exceptions like that you make until you get to the point where um, when I was teaching in Mount Olive College, we had a, a party once and a Jewish couple, the woman was one of my students, they came over and as they were leaving, they said, well, now that you live down here uh, in North Carolina, uh, you ought to take in a pig picking sometime. And I said, uh, what? Uh, yeah, they just roast a pig and you just line up and rip out handfuls of uh, roasted pork. And I said, you are Jews, aren't you? Well, yeah. Uh, you're going to wind up there and then next you're going to have uh, uh, mixed marriages and then you're going to wonder how should we raise the kids? Well, let's have, uh, what the heck do they call it? Uh, 
Christmica, Christmas and Hanukkah put together. Well, you know what's going to happen. They can't really be that committed to either one of the religions and eventually they become Unitarian or something, right? Same problem. I mean, this is why you had all these community-defining laws and customs and practices to to make it tougher to do that. Uh, And uh, and so why was uh, Christianity immediately attractive to diaspora Jews? At least uh, Pauline-type Christianity said, hey, look, this is just what you wanted, wasn't it? Uh, You you hear the Bible and you like it, you know it, Um, you uh, have one God, uh, you're committed to the superior ethics of Judaism. Uh, And uh, with Christianity, all of that's still there, but you don't have to keep kosher and all this stuff, right? Uh, But but that's okay, because that was once uh, required, but not anymore because the Messiah Jesus has come and abrogated that stuff. Well, sign me up! And... uh, uh, and why did Pauline-type Christianity win out over Jewish Christianity after two or three centuries? Well, uh, if Christian missionaries were, um, to, to Jews or to Gentiles, like two of them come in into town and one is saying, uh, hey, you Gentiles, you can become Christians too, uh, um, but of course you've got to become Jews because Christianity is is Judaism, really. So, you, mister, you're going to have to get circumcised and then agree to all these customs. Ah, wow. That's what Paul called a, 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 like a, a, the stumbling block. And he thought it unimportant, ultimately. Wait a minute. You're barring people from Christian conversion because of their menu? No, no, that, that can't be right. Uh, the, the real scandal of Christianity is, are you going to repent and, and uh, follow Christ? Uh, that doesn't really have anything to do with kosher. Uh, now, if you're a Jew and you want to become a Christian, you want to keep up the customs, what the heck? Uh, why not? But uh, you don't tell the poor dumb Gentiles they have to, because they don't have to. And uh, so this uh, attracted a lot of these assimilating Jews in the Hellenistic diaspora. Well, there were also a whole lot of people referred to as the pious Gentiles or the God-fearers. And these were were, uh, were non-Jews who were very attracted to Judaism because of the uh, the ethical monotheism of it. And uh, it was embarrassing the, the way the gods of pagan religions were described, their, their, uh, their uh, uh, immorality in various ways. And uh, one way of dealing with that from an advanced, more civilized perspective was what the Stoics did, uh, who said that, uh, well, yeah, we, we do believe in the Iliad and the Odyssey. They, they are Greek scriptures, but you have to take them symbolically. Uh, the gods didn't actually have sex with mortal women. No, no, no. Uh, that's just a kind of a, a metaphor for the wisdom of God penetrating the human soul. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. So they're the ones that invented allegory. Well, another response was to say, I guess those stories are 
um, intended literally, but if that's the case, they're bunk. Uh, I think these Jews have, I mean, they have superior morality and, uh, and, and it's simpler. There's one God who is absolutely righteous. And uh, so they w- attended synagogue and heard the scriptures read uh, and they were welcome to attend synagogue. Uh, but they didn't want to convert to Judaism because of all these laws, right? Stuff that didn't have any obvious connection to morality and so on. I mean, except that, of course, they defined Christian culture and community so it would make sense. If you want to join the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Jewish community, you wanted to join it you uh, for the sake of its upstanding morality that you would you know, buy the whole thing, right? Uh, but there were people that said, I, no, I, I don't see anything that is morally required there. Uh, how about if I just come and hear the preaching of, of your scripture and, and try my best to live by it? Oh, well, all right, sure. Uh, don't have to be circumcised in that case. Well, the theory is that uh, a lot of these Gentile God-fearers were kind of tired of not really being in the inner circle. They, they didn't really want to be second-class citizens religiously. And when when uh, Pauline-type Christianity, when, when a, a guy was preaching that— you know, which would you choose if you're a Gentile? I, I think it's pretty obvious you would, uh, you'd rather be a, I mean, the, the, the Levitical laws, that's why you weren't a full convert to Judaism. Well, if you, if this kind of Christianity is saying you can be a first class citizen of the kingdom of God without that stuff, well, naturally people are going to be, uh, attracted to that. So that's, uh, that's a lot of the uh, reasons and, uh, and the growth rate. I mean, it must, must have been something like that. Uh, and uh, we do have enough clues to think that these were operative factors. Now, here's another dimension of it that these scholars don't say. But whenever I think of the clout uh, Paul is said to have had, and that already by the time of the Jerusalem Council, he is he has to be taken seriously because of his huge number of converts uh, and uh, that the, the Jerusalem Christians were saying, well, we'll be happy to recognize you, but there's a price. Uh, and I don't mean me. Uh, you, you need to take a collection in all your churches to send to the mother church. I mean, you know, you really owe us, don't you? And, uh, and so how does, how does Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, already have a huger constituency? Well, here I kind of can't help thinking of Marcion and how he said, you know, Christianity is maybe like Judaism in some uh, respects, and it may have shared moral standards and Judaism is an okay religion, but it's not the Christian religion. And the great error of the original disciples of Jesus was to fail to recognize the novelty of what he had to say. Yes, very similar to Judaism, but very different in others. And this thing with the law, for instance, Jesus didn't want that. Uh, he he uh, didn't even believe he was talking about the same God as, you know, Catholics and others thought they were. But no, no, no. Uh, the creator God who gave the law was not the father of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he sent his son uh, to make a deal with the creator, uh, saying uh, that uh, we would like, my father and I, to to take 
your creatures off your hands. It's sort of an oppressive yoke. Uh, we, like in Acts 15, and um, to, uh, to ransom them from your grasp, uh, the, the Son of the Father, Jesus, died on the cross, which is about the only sense, even mythological, that I can make of the ransom language. You know, who, who ransom paid to whom? Uh, well, uh, paid by the Father of Jesus Christ to the Creator God. Uh, and that's why you have this adoption language in the New Testament, that we're adopted as sons and daughters of God and so on. Well, that may just be the tip of the iceberg because it occurs to me that um, in sometime in the second century, as Catholicism grew, what you saw was a merging of several different religions, not just uh, subsets, not just sects, but uh, that uh, there were, I mean, the Josephus is crawling with the name of uh, Jewish uh, leaders of different kinds who were named Jesus, Yeshua. And uh, and uh, when you have a double name like Jesus Christ, kind of makes me think we ought to wonder if these were two different saviors. Uh, it even mentions uh, another Jesus in uh I think it's 2 Corinthians, something similar is said in Galatians. And uh, what what is, and, and Paul or whoever the writer was, doesn't like the fact that there is another Jesus that some of his uh, erstwhile converts uh, are venerating. What is going on here? And uh, it, well, anyway, the double names, like in, uh, in, uh, oh, in Hellenized Egypt, you would hear about Jupiter Ammon or or Zeus Ammon, one a Greco-Roman deity, one an Egyptian one, fused together. Uh, you had in uh, Hinduism, you had Narayana Vishnu. Well, they were originally separate gods, but uh, their followers got together and said, well, I guess they're just two different names for the same one. Or uh, Vasudeva Krishna, that's two different gods originally. So I kind of wonder if Jesus Christ is a combination of the two different ones. All the more, now you might say, well, Jewish group and a Gentile group or multiple Gentile groups coming together, would they have been enough alike to even want to uh, join forces? Well, I don't know, but it, it, you, the argument cuts both ways. If Christianity were really what we think of today, you got to ask, why would any Gentiles be interested in Christian preaching? I've said this several times. Uh, if, if the good news was what Jewish Christians thought, that, that the Messiah of Israel has come at last, it's Jesus of Nazareth, and Gentiles hear about this, they say, well, good for you, it's irrelevant to me. I mean, I, if a new king of uh, uh, Parthia takes the throne, you know, what's that to me? Uh, it's like if today, oh, let's have a celebration because uh, Emperor, what's his name, Nakihito has taken the throne. Oh, what the heck? I can see him celebrating in, in Japan, but I can't even remember the guy's name, right? Uh, uh, why would Hellenistic, why would uh, Gentiles care if it was a traditional rabbinic-style Messiah that was being proclaimed? <laughs> uh, it seems to me that... Uh, 
that for them to have gotten to well for them to eventually possess both types of belief Jewish messianism and uh, dying and rising savior God that wouldn't have been a natural evolution it implies that these two religions were uh, united somehow and uh, I mean along the line so that has to be kept in mind as a possibility you may have had different originally quite uh, incompatible types of religion fused together for one reason or another I, w I wouldn't be surprised but it all this does remain speculative though though both theories I think are plausible so thanks Chris keep up the good work here's one from Rick Weiler in Ottawa Canada uh, during a recent podcast you were reflecting on Genesis 6 19 eh, uh, mentioning how if Noah had indeed brought two of all living creatures into the ark there scarcely would have been sufficient room given the dimensions provided a few verses earlier this got me to thinking doesn't Genesis 6 19 imply a significant diminution of the power of the God who a few chapters before had created all living things why round up all the animals couldn't god have just created them anew after the flood has this issue of the apparently hobbled god been addressed by commentators i'm sure somebody's fished up something out of their uh, apologetic imagination but well the big thing is that they say well god created various kinds broad categories of, of animals and uh, there there weren't nearly as many different species like we consider a couple of different kinds of uh, you know, sparrows different species and and all that or, or insects you know there are millions upon millions of species of insects but they didn't look at it that way. They just said, oh, yeah, bugs, creeping things. As long as there were a couple of those, yeah, that couldn't have taken up that much room. Uh, that wouldn't work anyway, and it just seems to be text twisting. I mean, it, and of course, the problem is that the ancients, I mean, they're, they're sort of right. It wasn't that, the, uh, that God had created only broad kinds, right? It, it's just that that's all the ancient Israelite taxonomy reckoned with. Of course, there were loads of species that they they didn't know anything about and never encountered in their world, right? You're talking about a pretty limited geographical area. So they thought there were a lot less of uh, animals. And uh, like you go to the zoo, well, I guess all those could fit onto the ark. But there were all manner of, of things that we know about now that the common reader didn't know about. I remember one, there's a great, great uh, essay, uh, The Impossible Voyage of Noah's Ark by Robert A. Moore, where he goes into hilariously excruciating detail about uh, the, the stuff that the writers of these ancient flood stories just didn't reckon with. They didn't know anything about it, whether you're talking about the Greek one, the Assyrian one, the Sumerian one, the Babylonian one, and so on and so on. They all have the, the same... Um, uh, problem. They they just had no uh, idea uh, that all these creatures existed, or the ones they did know how you would accommodate them. If you took a couple of giraffes along on a big boat, I mean, let's just forget about the uh, the sanitation system. Good God Almighty! Uh, with giraffes, Moore points out that. 
if you were to take a couple of them on the ark, uh, for them to survive, you would have to have created leather slings of a certain kind to keep the uh, the, the animals from breaking their bones and crashing around. They, it just didn't occur to them. This is myth, right? And uh, I always like to say in favor of the ancients, they weren't stupid, but they just didn't know many things that we know. Uh, and so uh, you can't really blame them for this. They're, they're just uh, trying to come up with... Uh, a way of explaining a local flood their ancestors had had. They, it was their world that got uh, dunked, and so they assumed it was the world. So it, it's just the fact that it's an ancient myth. Uh, they uh, and, and also how how omnipotent did they think of God being? I mean, you got one flood story, the J story, that. Uh, says that uh, God flooded the the world and and he uh and he left it to Noah to bring the animals why didn't he just create more on the spot or why didn't he just beam them over uh, well did they look at God in in that uh, way i mean the same writer the j writer has uh, the uh, uh has uh God in the Garden of Eden having to ask where the man and the woman are. Hey, where is everybody? Uh, what? Uh, I thought this was omniscient, omnipotent. It's like Zeus. You don't really, ha you're not talking about Thomas Aquinas here, right? So it's just the result of it being naive mythological uh, thinking, not stupid thinking, because you had to be pretty ingenious to come up with this stuff, but they they weren't in a position to know better. So, Rick, I think that's what's going on there. And, of course, uh, orthodox commentators are not big on uh, zeroing in on the uh, inadequacies historically or scientifically of these old stories. They just try to come up with desperate explanations for how, well, uh, Really could have happened. Maybe Brainiac, Superman's villain, uh, had uh, used his shrink ray on all the animals. Uh, so it was just like having an ant farm. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, okay. Um, this is from uh, Jason here in good old North Carolina. Um, I just finished reading two books. The first was Zoroastrianism by John W. Waterhouse, and the second was The Older Testament by Margaret Barker, who she's a favorite of ours around here. Uh, in the conclusion to Barker's uh, book, she states that the well-developed angel theology found in the first temple cult seems to be indigenous to Israel and can't be attributed to an alien source. While uh, while reading this, I couldn't help but recall the well-developed angel theology present in Zoroastrianism, specifically the, the fallen Ahriman and his demons as the source of evil in the world. This sounds to me strikingly similar to the fallen angel mythology and Enoch. We know that Zoroastrianism had a profound impact on Second Temple theology, but could the reverse have also occurred? Could the angel mythology and sacredness of the First Temple cult have influenced Zoroastrianism? The legends concerning Zarathustra's origins are vague, but most claim 
he came from somewhere in the West, uh, most likely Afghanistan, Persia, according to their maps. Uh, could this be an indication that the ideas which so drastically changed Persian religion originated in part in Israel with the first temple and spread eastward into Iran, gradually evolving into Zoroastrianism? Am I possibly on to something or just drawing connections where none are present? Has this idea been explored by anyone in the past? Can you point me toward any books or articles that show a possible link between the first temple cult and Zoroastrianism? Uh, actually, no. Uh, a lot of this has to do with the hypothetical dating, both of the descriptions of the temple in the Bible and the, uh, the Zoroastrian scriptures, which are a big mess. Uh, there, in terms of dating, we nobody really kept adequate records of who wrote what when. The result being we have uh, very different theories. I mean, we don't even know when Zoroaster was supposed to have lived. Did he live uh, during the so-called axial age? Did he uh, did he live in uh, what was that? I guess the seventh century. Some people say, yeah, yeah, he did. But then other scholars say, no, that's the result of some. Um, chronological scribe who um, read a reference to uh, the birth of Cyrus the Great and and uh, didn't realize who they were talking about, thought it must be Zoroaster the prophet. Others say, no, he must have lived around a thousand BCE or even something like 1200 BCE. Uh, BCE. So nobody really knows. And on the basis of this, you have theories that say Zoroastrianism was originally monotheistic uh, and uh, then uh, classical dualistic Zoroastrianism that said no. Uh, Ahriman and um, Uhura Mazda were co-equal deities from all eternity. Uh, and uh, others that say no, no. Uh, uh, Uhura Mazda was the uh, uh, was the original god, but he begat two sons, one uh, Ormuzd and, no, that's not right, I can't think of the name of the good one, uh, Angaramainu, who became Ahriman, and, uh, gee, I can't remember the other one, uh, and uh, that there were these, these uh, good and evil deities, and moral action in the world is your fighting on behalf of good or evil. Every sin you commit, you're really advancing the cause of Ahriman, the evil anti-god. Every good thing you do, it's a blow struck on behalf of Ahura uh, Mazda. Uh, then there are uh, people that say that uh, either the monotheism was original and split up into a dualism, but and and, uh, and eventually that was um, restored once they decided that Zervan, the Lord of Eternal Time, was the one who had the two sons. Nobody knows. You could argue it either way based on the logic of the system. This looks like uh, you know a more sophisticated version of this. Uh, uh, that looks like a reactionary version of that. Uh, I don't think I don't know what the predominant consensus, if there is one, is today. But uh, it's uh, seems like uh, th th it's hard to tell. But 
I tend to go along with the theory that Judaism, as we know it, in the first, well, the end of the BCE period, let's say that, uh, that that appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls and um, in Pharisaism, which became Rabbinic Judaism, that this was the result of the imposition of Zoroastrianism onto post-exilic Judaism. In other words, like previously, critical scholars had figured that, um, let's see, that uh, it was just that Jewish priests uh, who, who lived in the Babylonian exile were heavily influenced by Zoroastrianism after Cyrus the Great uh, defeated the Babylonians and uh, Judea was added to the Persian Empire. Uh, that uh, this is toward the end of the exile, and uh, and that when um, uh, the uh, the Persian overlords sent Ezra and Nehemiah to reorganize Judaism in Palestine, that uh, it wasn't that they simply borrowed ideas from. Uh, Persian Zoroastrianism. Hey, this thing with the dualism, that, that might get us out of a real conundrum we've always worried about. How could a good God have created a world that went so wrong? Well, maybe he didn't exactly. Uh, maybe it was you know, mainly uh, Oramazda, but also uh, some uh, Ahriman. Yeah, maybe that would do the trick. Uh, uh, and uh, the problems with uh, why are the righteous punished and the, the wicked rewarded, well, uh, maybe the Zoroastrians have a point that this isn't the end. Maybe that uh, maybe the dead will all rise to face judgment and reward. That does kind of seem more fair. Well, it, it seems simpler as an explanation, especially in light of the known practice of these mega-empires, that uh, they would, once they absorbed uh, a culture, they would uh, tell the people, you know, we're not really imposing anything on you. We are restoring the uh, the, the faith and the the uh, the customs that your ancestors had. Uh, in fact, if we've moved you from uh, Babylon to to uh, to Israel, that may to the Palestine, whatever you want to call it, maybe we are not. Uh, displacing you, but restoring you. Maybe originally uh, your um, your your ancestors lived uh, back here, and uh, there's some great stuff by uh, Philip uh, R. Davies about this, and uh, another of the Old Testament min minimalists. And I uh, lean in that direction that it was that you've simply got a kind of Zoroastrianism with uh, a Jewish accent. An older form of Judaism was probably that of the Sadducees. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure if anybody tries to trace it back the other way. It just makes more sense, though it is speculative to take it this way. Okay. Uh, let's see. All right, one more here. Um, I'm not sure who this is from. I'm sorry. Uh, he says, uh, my great uncle Frank Burl was a lifelong. Could this be Tim Burl? 
Uh, anyway, my great uh, uncle Frank Burl was a lifelong bachelor devoted to church, Bible study, and evangelism. Uh, his visits to our family in western Michigan were always joyous special occasions. We were delighted by his affectionate demeanor and mischievous sense of humor. Since our own dad wasn't given to dad jokes, the honor fell to him, and he performed the role gleefully with puns as bad as they come. Uh, we were also a bit in awe of his status as a kind of holy man. Frank once demonstrated his memorization of the King James Bible by asking us, sitting in Grandmom's living room, each in turn to open it at random, pick a verse, and recite it for him. He immediately picked up the text from that point and continued reciting rapid fire for a few more verses. On this occasion, I was last in line to pick my verse, so while Frank was occupied with the other family members, I furtively flipped in my Bible to the very last verse of the last page and memorized it quickly. Revelation 22:21 is short, fortunately, so I could say it while holding the book open in the middle as a feint. And to my astonishment, he kept going. Maybe he was reciting a new book beyond Revelation. Perhaps a divine prophecy deposited spontaneously and unawares for our edification. If only Dad's tape recorder had been running. Uh, that's great. Uh, anyway, yes, I do actually have a question for you. At this late date, I don't know how accurate Uncle Frank's Bible memory was. It was about 50 years ago, after all, and I was probably about 10 years old. But I haven't yet met anyone else before or since who could do this or even claimed to. Do you know people who actually have memorized the Bible, all of it, and could demonstrate it? Well, uh, I uh, did have the good fortune to meet an amazing character uh, called Holy Hubert Lindsay, who in the late 60s was uh, an open-air preacher on the campus of uh, Berkeley in California. And uh, he was some wacky-looking guy, a gap-toothed, uh, kind of weird clothing, I guess, not hippie clothing, but kind of garish uh, patterns and all that. And and he would, uh, and he, he came across like a hick, though, in fact, he was quite witty. Uh, in fact, I love the story. He would be heckled by the crowd, and, uh, virtually none of whom would take him seriously, right? And uh, some some guy in the, in the uh, crowd says, hey, Hubert, it takes an idiot to be a Christian. And uh, and without missing a beat, Hubert Lindsay said, oh, yeah, well, you qualify. I love it, I'm telling you. Uh, in fact, I imagine Jesus said something like that uh, to uh, the uh, demoniac in the Capernaum synagogue. Anyway, uh, so I did meet him, and, and supposedly he had memorized the whole King James Bible, uh, I don't doubt it. I, it's real unusual. But uh, another historical figure, Eugene V. Debs, who was uh, the uh, the leader of the, I think it was the International Workers of the World Party, uh, he what, back in the twenties or something like that. Uh, he is sort of a precursor to communism, I guess, in America. 
uh, he supposedly knew the whole King James Bible word for word. And, uh, you know, the legends grow in the telling, obviously, but at least this man was claimed to have done that. I uh, wouldn't be surprised. I, I've not met anybody other than Holy Hubert uh, um, uh, that that made that claim, but could well be. I mean, it's hard to imagine but what the heck? Maybe so. Boy, that's a, that's a great. Uh... Oh, you know, the, the, I'm guessing that uh, perhaps your uncle had memorized the. Uh... Oh no, that's not right. Uh, in in uh, the movie Constantine, uh, Constantine, uh, fi- John Constantine, occult detective gets a copy of the, I love this, of the Bible version used in hell, uh, which explains why uh, the demons were still fighting God, because they said that uh, you're not getting the whole story. There's another chapter in 1 Corinthians where it says, we win. Uh, I love that. That is just so great. But it wasn't Revelation, so I guess your uh, uncle didn't have the satanic version on hand. Boy, that would be some interesting uh, thing to um, read. But but now, this is a possibility. Well, not really. (laughs) Uh, I've written a a couple of stories where somebody discovers a manuscript. One of them is called The, The Seven Thunders. And you know how in uh, the book of Revelation, John the Revelator is uh, hearing and seeing all kinds of uh, apocalyptic portraits, and uh, there are seven thunderclaps and uh, that were apparently intelligible. And th- this was, I mean, of course, the whole thing's not even a record of genuine visions. It's a literary convention. But um, there was something called brontology, which was divination by thunderclaps. There were people that claimed to be able to to interpret them. Well, that's presupposed. And uh, and so John says that he heard the seven thunders sound, and he was about to transcribe uh, what they said, namely into the book of Revelation itself, right? Uh, but an angel told him, uh-uh, no, Seal up what the seven thunders have said. Huh? There's no explanation for that. Uh, I got a couple. Um, I discussed this in the uh, chapter devoted to uh, Thunder Perfect Mind in my book, The Pre-Nicene New Testament. You can take a look at that. But um, in in my uh, story, it it turns out that that denoted a scribe's wink to the reader that he had cut out an original part of the text of Revelation. You know how in Revelation it says, uh, if anybody takes anything away from this text, uh, his uh, his portion in the tree of life will be uh, taken away, uh, and uh, and so forth. Well, that was a kind of a wink to the reader that that had happened and uh, that um, the, so what was the oracle of the seven thunders? And so I 
of course, cooked it up for the sake of the story. And um, one of these stories is called The Curate of Temp Hill, which uh, is a story that Peter Cannon and I wrote in one of my old Chaosium anthologies, The Shub-Nigurath Cycle. Uh, let's see, but uh, better one probably would be in my story, The Seven Thunders, and in the anthology Cthulhu Invictus. Uh, and uh, so if you want to know, so what I'm suggesting is maybe your uncle had gotten a hold of that uh, original text. And uh, of course, that wouldn't have been at the very end, but that's the best I can do. <laughs> what a lot of nonsense, right? Okay, well, I'll be seeing you soon uh, for the next exciting edition of the Bible Geek. Uh, and uh, if you are not a Patreon patron, uh, let me welcome you aboard. And uh, then you can get all the installments of which there should be another one soon of the Human Bible. So, okay, see you later. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.